Good afternoon. I've never had my identity stolen, but I know some people that have. And they say when you get your identity stolen, it's difficult to get it back, to try to convince people that you are you. Just imagine that, trying to convince somebody else that you are exactly who you claim to be. That might be a monumental task, as you would have to produce documentation to prove, because someone else has sort of come in and stolen your identity, presented themselves as being you, and now you have to do the hard work of presenting yourself as you. That's difficult to do because all you can do is keep saying, I am who I am. I am who I claim to be. You can't produce really enough documentation to reverse the tables. It's almost an insurmountable odds to overcome. When you think about who God is in Scripture and who the Bible says that God is over and over again, God, sadly enough, has to introduce himself to his creation. God made man in his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, but throughout the pages of Scripture, what we find is God coming to humanity and suggesting to us, appreciate who I am. I am who I claim to be. I think about Exodus 5 and verse 2 where Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord? I know not the Lord, neither will I let the children of Israel go. Or in 2 Chronicles 32, 14 and 15, when the Assyrians say, as they're about to engage in battle with Israel, who is the Lord and who's going to deliver you out of our hands? They have no clue who God is. But then there are other times in Scripture when we read of individuals who claim to know who God is and they misrepresent him. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan says to Eve, you will not surely die for God knows in the day that you eat thereof, your eyes will be open, you'll be wise, you'll be like God's knowing good and evil. You see the devil tried to present himself as one who knew God, but he really didn't. Or in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah says, see, I knew you, God, that you were gracious and kind, steadfast and forgiving. And that's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. You have people that don't know God and God says, hey, let me introduce myself to you. And then there are others who claim to know who God is and they really have no idea. In several of these afternoon sessions, the theme has been be still and know something about God. And this afternoon it is be still and know the God of mercy. I don't know what you think about God. I don't know what has formed your views about who God is. But throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, God is trying to get us to see just exactly who he is. And one of the defining attributes of God, the way that God describes himself to humanity, is that he's a God full of mercy. We don't want to believe that. Sometimes we struggle with that. And so the Bible repeats it over and over again. Maybe we believe that God is too exacting or that God demands more of us than we could possibly ever measure up to. And maybe we've had some bad representations of God. But I believe the best way to handle this is simply to let God speak for himself. When Moses says, show me your glory, God said, you can't see my glory and live. No man can do that. But I will pass before you and show you my glory. And then he says, this is who I am. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord God, he's gracious and compassionate and long-suffering and merciful to thousands. God says, I'm merciful. You know that God is merciful just like I do. Ezra 9 and verse 13 says, we have been punished less than our sins and our iniquities deserve. God's merciful. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Hosea 6 and verse 6. And then you come over to the New Testament, and this idea is further elaborated on again and again in passages like Matthew 5 and verse 7, where Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. Mercy from who? From God, who is abundantly mercy. He's rich in mercy. Ephesians 2 and verse 4. 
when the Bible describes mercy, and this is what I want us to underscore, and then we'll get to our main text this afternoon. In the Old Testament, this idea of mercy is not just merely the idea of God relenting in punishment. When I was a kid, my friends and I would sometimes play this game. We put our hands together, and we try to bend the other person's hand back, you know, and whoever would give in. Well, they would have to cry for mercy, and the other individual would win. That's not what the Bible means necessarily when it describes the mercy of God. When the Bible describes God as being merciful, it's about his steadfast love, his continuous compassion that he has for you and for me because of who he is. God is merciful. His mercies are new every morning. Lamentations 3, 22 and 24. His steadfast love is continuous. You can bank on it. But also in the Bible, mercy carries this idea. Not only that God's love is continuous, but mercy in the Bible is God's compassion and pity toward individuals that are in need. God sees us as we are, and he wants to come over and help us. If you were leaving this auditorium today or this assembly and heading home and you saw a little dog and the dog was caught up underneath a barbed wire fence trying to get itself out and it was harming itself and tearing its skin as it tried to break free, a merciful individual wouldn't just ride by and say, I feel bad for the dog and keep going. Mercy would suggest what? That you try to intervene, try to relieve the pain, try to provide some sort of remedy. And that's what God does for us. Turn your Bible to Psalm 46. In Psalm 46, we really have the base text for this lesson and where these ideas come from. Be still and know. Psalm 46 and verse 10 is really the launching verse for this lesson. But the entirety of this psalm teaches us five foundational things about who God is. And to the degree that we appreciate those things we'll walk away from this lesson better encouraged, better and willing and able to appreciate the mercy that God extends to us. The psalmist says things, though the people that first encountered this psalm are centuries removed from us. The psalmist says things that we today still need to appreciate, facts that we still need to ingrain in our lives, memorize and meditate on if we really will appreciate who God is. God is our refuge and our strength. He's a very present help in trouble. The psalmist says, therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters shake and roar and the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, there is a city whereof the streams make glad the city of God, the holy places and tabernacles of the God most high. In those first four verses, he says, there's nothing to be afraid of. God's with us. The mountains won't move us. In verse five, he says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her. And very early, The psalmist is driving home this reality. I want you to know who your God is. I want you to know that God cares about you. I want you to know that there is nothing for you to fear. The heathens rage. The kingdoms are moved. He uttered his voice in verse 6, and the earth, it melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, down through verse 7. You can trust God. You can depend on God. You can bank on God. God is not going to abandon his people. Verse 80 says, come and behold the works of God. What desolations he's made in the earth. He makes wars to cease from the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spears in pieces. He burns chariots with fire. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Five things this afternoon from Psalm 46 about who God is in light of his mercy and what it means for us and then the lesson is yours. Here's number one. God is our refuge. 
God is our refuge. Because God has an extended or eternal loving kindness toward us, we can trust this reality. God is our refuge. Or another way to say it would be this. God is our protection. God's our safe place. Notice that the psalmist uses language over and over again to suggest that there are a lot of dangerous things going on around him or around the people of God. Mountains are quaking. Seas are being removed. Different things are happening. But the people of God, they have safety. Verse 1 says, God is our refuge. He's a very present help in trouble. In verse 7 and in verse 11, he mentions this idea that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. That is, God is a safe place for his people to turn. We sometimes sing about this idea based on Proverbs 18 and verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are what? They're safe. God's not going to turn us away because he's merciful. God has abundant compassion on people that need it. And that's people like you, people like me. On the flight over here, my wife and I, we flew from Tampa to Fort Lauderdale. And then from Fort Lauderdale, they flew us to San Antonio. But on the flight from Tampa to Fort Lauderdale, on the way down, the plane was landing. And then for whatever reason, I was just waking up from my nap. The pilot took back off again, at which time the lady sitting next to me, she was terrified. She grabbed my arm and she said, why is he doing that? Why are we taking off again? This is why I haven't flown on a plane since September 11th. She was asking me, and I said, I don't know. I just woke up, but I know this. When she latched on to me, this is what I didn't do. I didn't say, get off me. That's not my problem. First of all, her grip was far too tight for me to do that. But second of all, that wouldn't have been a kind thing to do. When you and I are afraid, when the mountains roar about us, and we latch on to God, and we say, we really need help. We're terrified. I don't know what's going to happen. God's a God of mercy. He's a God of refuge. He's a God of safety. He welcomes us in. Ninety-four times in the Old Testament, the Bible describes God as a God of refuge. Forty-four of those are found in the book of Psalms. Psalm 14 and verse 6 talks about the poor and the needy being cast out, but God is their refuge. Psalm 61 and verse 3 says, God is my fortress, and then God is my refuge. Psalm 62 and verse 8 says, come before God, pour out your entire heart before him because God is your refuge. Psalm 91 and verse 2 echoes this same idea that God's a place of safety and then that God is a place of refuge. The thing that we can appreciate about the mercy of God, his unending compassion is this. God welcomes us in. God invites us in. And God won't cast us out as long as we're faithful to him. God's safety Notice how many times the psalmist says that God is close to us. In verse 1, God is our refuge and he is present. In verse 5, he's in the midst of us. In verse 7 and in verse 11, he echoes the same thought that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is again our safety. You've got to view God properly. And what scripture says is that God is here. In the midst of his people, though he can't be seen, God is omnipresent. The mercy of God says he doesn't let us walk through trials or through life alone. But God also hears. He hears our cries. He knows what we're experiencing. And as we lift up our prayers to him, the mercy of God says he bends his ear toward heaven and he wants to hear from us. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to our prayers. And then God helps. It's not just that God is present and that God hears, but then that he stands back aloof or inactive. The psalmist says in verse 1, a very present help in time of need, when you need him. He's not just there. He enters into our suffering. He enters into our lives. And he wants to help and he wants to rescue. 
In January of 2019, so far as the numbers show, there are 28,000 homeless people in Florida. 28,000 people. There may be various reasons why they're homeless. Some of them desire to live that way. Unfortunately, some of them do not want to comply with the conditions that they would have to in order to have a place to live. But I often wonder this, living in Florida, where do they go when the hurricanes come? And every once in a while, it gets a little chilly in Florida, where do they go then? And when the storms come, and when tornadoes and various things, where do they run? And people in the world that think, and maybe even in the church, that God is so demanding and so exacting, and I never could please him. And if I mess up one time, I'm out of his favor and his fellowship. God will cast me out. Where will they turn when they really need to run to the one who says, I'm your refuge? Sometimes a person has lived the life of a profligate. Somebody's lived the life of a prodigal and lived a reckless and sinful life. And somebody says, well, now you're turning back to the Lord because life's not going the way you want. Now you're coming to God because you're in trouble. That's exactly what you should do. Psalm 46 and verse 1 says he's a very present help in times of what? In times of trouble. It's always right to turn to God, not to use God or abuse his grace, but it's right to say, I need safety and I need somewhere to turn. God is our very present help. God's described as our refuge. And this idea about God being our refuge is coupled with his mercy, with his unceasing love, with his care and compassion for those of us who need it the most. It helps, clears up, it helps us to clear up ideas, mistaken ideas that we often have about who God is. Where is God when I'm suffering? Maybe God's just allowing all of these things to happen and God stands aloof and he's not interested. The psalmist says that's not true. Why won't God intervene? When will he intervene? Look at verse 5. He will help them, and he will do it immediately, early, speedily, not on our timetable, but at the right time. The psalmist says God's our refuge. Maybe you've been moving before, and you've tried to get an odd piece of furniture through a door. That ever happened to you? And you start in, and you can't get it in, and so you back up and you put it back down. And then you start in again, and you think you've got it in, and then you can't do it. You put it back down again. And normally when that happens, there's somebody nearby. A spouse, friend, or sibling that knows exactly how it's supposed to go in. They're standing right there telling you. They won't help. They won't assist. But they're sort of armchair experts, right? If you would just do this and do that, they provide no help, no assistance. But they know everything you're doing wrong. The psalmist says, listen, as you try to wiggle and squeeze through the difficulties of life, God doesn't just stand back as an armchair theologian and say, you know what, life would be so much better if you just did this and if you just did that. He doesn't just bark out commands and say, you could really fix things if you would just do it this way. God's our very present help. He's our refuge. Isaiah 43, verses 2 and 3, God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you go through the fires, they won't overwhelm you. They won't kindle you, for I am in the midst of you. I go with you. Why? Because God's a God of mercy. God's a God of steadfast love. God's a God of continuous and abundant compassion. A God of wrath? Absolutely. But God's our refuge. When God reintroduces himself to people or when people have a mistaken notion of who God is, one of the things that needs to be appreciated is this. God is a God of a place of safety for his people. Now, here's number two. Number two, the mercy of God means that God's people have nothing to fear. Notice verse two and verse three. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled and the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Notice the emphatic and just the resolve of the psalmist. We will not fear. We won't do it. Why not? Though all of these things are going around, the most often repeated command in Scripture is this in both Old and New Testament. Do not be afraid. 
do not be afraid. God's God of mercy. There's nothing to fear. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and God's changed his mind about loving you as his child. Do not be afraid. No matter what's going on around us in the world, whatever chaos is breaking out in the world, do not be afraid. Of course, the psalmist is not speaking literally in verses 2 and verse 3 when he says that the mountains shake and swell and that all of these things are carried into the midst of the sea. But his point still stands, doesn't it? It doesn't matter how much chaos breaks out into the world. The one group of people that should stand resolved are God's people. We should be the group of people that can stand no matter what happens because we trust in the God who will not allow us to be destroyed. Doesn't mean that we don't use common sense, doesn't mean that we don't wear seatbelts, that we don't save up for a rainy day, but this is what it does mean. People of God are not going to be paralyzed by fear of sudden economic ruin, emotional instability, whatever those things may be. We're going to deal with those things. The Bible teaches us to be concerned, to take proper precautions, but we will not fear because God's with us. What I'm about to say isn't going to help some of you, but I hope it'll help a small fraction. I read an article in Time Magazine about our fear of cockroaches. Now, I don't know if you have roaches in Texas, but some people are just terrified of them. Some people, if they saw one, would jump 12 feet in the air on one of these pews. But there's a professor from Wyoming who says our fear of these bugs are irrational. He says, in fact, it's not a fear of nature or natural. It's a fear of nurture. Kids early on are used to walking up on bugs. They want to investigate them. They want to see what they're about. And it's not until we get older that people teach us that, hey, that's a roach there. You ought to be afraid. You should, he says there's nothing to fear about those bugs. They can't harm. I know you don't believe me, but there's nothing they can do. They won't harm you. They won't hurt you. There's nothing to be afraid of. He says you've been taught to fear them. You don't have to. Now, I don't know if that's going to help you with roaches or bugs, but I know this. The psalmist says the world around us has conditioned us to be afraid. They think if they say it louder, if they put it in all bold or in all caps, and if they heighten the states, they can get the people of God to fear. But you see, the God we serve is merciful. There is nothing for Christians to fear. Reverence for God, absolutely. But quaking fear that paralyzes us and keeps us from doing what God would have us to do is not an option for God's person. Psalm 41 and verse 10, God says, I am your God. I created you. I am with you. Do not be afraid. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 assures us of God's presence. Because God is with us, we will not fear. What can man do to me? What can possibly happen to the child of God? Jesus says in Luke 12 and verse 4, they can only harm the body, they can't kill the soul. And God will preserve us into eternity. The only thing that death can do to us in this life is promote us to our eternal reward. And therefore, because we know that God is merciful and compassionate, Christians have nothing to fear. When you think about all that God's done for us and all that he's done to evidence his love toward us, it removes the possibility of being afraid. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. God's watching out for me. The mercy of God says that God not only knows what I'm doing, but he's concerned about my life in an intricate way, a God that gives attention to detail. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. More than that, we can pray at any time and reach up to God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be anxious or careful about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How do you know God's going to hear? Because God's a God of mercy and compassion. His love is unending. He cares about individuals that are in need. What time I am afraid, I will trust in you. Psalm 56, 3 and 4. Don't be afraid. 
the mercy of God, that reality that God is merciful, it removes fear. It gives us a comfort that the world can't afford to give us. The world can't offer this to us. The only way we can receive it is when we put all of our eggs in the divine basket of God, when we trust in him and we trust in his promises and his providence, and we know that God's going to see us through. The psalmist is talking to people that are surrounded by calamity, surrounded by hardship, and he wants to further drive home this idea. No matter what happens in the world, the people of God have nothing to fear. Now, here's number three. Number three. The mercy of God says that the people of God, the city of God, is safe. In verse 4, he says, There is a river whereof the streams make glad the city of God, the holy places, the tabernacles of the Most High. He speaks about the, the people of God. In the Old Testament, that would be Jerusalem. Now, of all of the places in the world, when you read the Old Testament, the place that meant the most on earth, the city of David, it was Jerusalem. Elsewhere in Scripture, the Bible talks about the safety that was afforded this place, and there was nothing. Unless God willed it so, there was nothing that could penetrate Jerusalem. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so God is around his people. Psalm 125 and verse 2. Small little place if you look in the back of your Bible at a map, but though mountains and armies and other adversaries often surrounded and wanted to encroach upon Jerusalem, God assured them nothing would ever happen to them. One time in the Old Testament, there were 185,000 individuals from the Assyrian army that were out and around Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah, and it was their desire to come in and overcome and overwhelm the kingdom. But God assured Hezekiah, one angel in one night destroyed 185,000 Assyrians, 2 Kings 19 and verse 35. What does that have to do with you and me, and what does that have to do with the mercy of God? It means this, God's steadfast love, God's compassion for you and for me, as long as we're in God's city, not literal Jerusalem, but as long as we're members of God's kingdom, as long as we're in the family of God, the citizens of God, the family of God, is the place of safety, and there's nothing for us to fear. The city of God is safe, though everything else takes place. Sometimes we talk about God's wrath and God's punishment for sin, and we say, what's going to happen to America? I don't know what's going to happen to America, but I know this. Everybody that's washed in the blood of the Lamb will be safe and has nothing to fear. The city of God, God's people, His covenant people, those individuals are safe, and that's you, and that's me. And so we can dwell in that place safely, knowing that, guess what, no matter what happens in the world, God's going to see to it that his people are brought through. God's going to see to it, as Daniel 2 and verse 44 says, that this kingdom, the church that belongs to Jesus Christ, it'll stand forever. And it won't stand merely because we're perfect and we get it all right and we've never done anything wrong. It'll stand because God is a God of mercy. He's a God that doesn't change. He's a God we can depend on. And because we're in that city, being a Christian is more than just, I've checked all the right boxes, I've done the right things. I've come into this special relationship with God. And when God looks on the world, he loves everybody in the world, but he loves his people with a special love. And he protects them in a unique way. And the city of God is safe. And we can look to God, trusting that God won't abandon us and that God keeps his word because he's a God of mercy and a God of steadfast love. Now, here's number four. Number four, the mercy of God suggests that we need to behold the works of God. Look at verse eight. He says, come and behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. 
This is an invitation from the psalmist. It's not an invitation like we extend at the end of our lessons where we say, maybe there's somebody here who's not a Christian that needs to respond. This is a different invitation. After all that the psalmist has said, if we're not convinced that God's with us, that God's our refuge, that God's for us, that God won't abandon us, that we're safe, he says, well, why don't you just come with me on a guided tour? Come and behold the works of the Lord. Come and see what God has done and then be impressed. Do you believe in the mercy of God? When you sin and when you violate God's law and then you repent and you pray and you say, God, would you forgive me? I'm doing the best that I can. I'm going to strive not to go in that way anymore. Do you really believe that God's forgiven you? When we pillow our heads at night and we think, what if I died tonight? I don't know. Would I go to heaven? Maybe, maybe not. And we're sort of unsure about whether God's going to keep his promises, whether God is really merciful, whether mercy really triumphs over judgment. James 2 and verse 13. How can we really be sure about those things when we're tormented? and we're anxious and concerned about the character of who God is, the psalmist says in verse 8, would you come with me and behold the works of God? See the things that God has done. See how God has acted in the past. Sometimes before a person gets up to preach, somebody says, we pray that he has a ready recollection of the things that he's studied, right? We hope he remembers the things that he's studied so he can deliver them to us in the right way. Every Christian needs a ready recollection of all that God has done. Now, this starts off in a general way. We need a ready recollection. We need to be easily reminded of all that God has done in history, all that God has done to bring us to this point. And then we need to be readily reminded of the things that he's done specifically in our own lives. That is, you need to be able, and I need to be able to easily recall in our own lives how many times God's mercy has shined forth, how good God's been to us. If that's not the case, God will always have to audition for our trust. Every new trial, every new difficulty, we'll have to convince ourselves that God is as merciful as he claims to be. Remember at the beginning of this lesson, we said when somebody steals your identity, it's difficult to try to convince people that you are who you say that you are. And God is always going to have to produce identification and say, hey, I really am a God of mercy if we don't do what the psalmist says we should in verse 8. Now, he speaks generally in verse 9 about the works of God. He makes wars to cease from the ends of the earth. He burns, the, he breaks the bow. He cuts the spears in pieces. He burns chariots with fire. This is about the victorious nature of God. But we know of other specific actions that God has done. He delivered Israel through the Red Sea. That is not just there for historical information. It's to say the deliverance of Israel from the Red Sea in the Old Testament is to the Old Testament what the death, burial, and resurrection is to us in the New Testament. It's that monumental. It's that important. They always point back to that event. That is to say, this is the point when God rescues his people and brings them to safety. He let the walls of Jericho fall down after the people marched around for seven days. Joshua chapter 6. When we go back and behold the works of God and see what God has done in the past, it is that fuel that pushes us forward in the days to come. You know, Job wanted to interview God. Job was frustrated, and Job had questions for God. And you remember his point? Job said, if I could just see him, if we could just talk face to face, there are some things that I want to get off my chest. And when God finally showed up, Job was literally tongue-tied. He couldn't say a thing. And when he finally could, Job said, I know now, God, that you can do anything. After God asked him all those questions, it wasn't just a blitz interview for Job. It was a tour through the works of God. God says, were you there when I created this? Were you there when I did this? Can you tell the waters of the sea, go here and no further? Job, if I can do all of those things, 
don't you think that I've got you? That I've got your life in my hands. I'm not going to let anything crush you. I uphold all of these things by the word of my power. Aren't you impressed with what I'm able to do? Job says, I've heard of you, but now I've seen you. What changed Job? He did what the psalmist said he should in verse 8. He beheld the works of God. We shouldn't just study creation from the standpoint of, hey, here's my atheist friend, and I want to show this person that God exists, and so here are the arguments. We've got design, and design points to a designer. Well, that's great. And we've got the moral argument, and the moral argument says if there are moral laws that are universal, there's a universal moral lawgiver, and that's great too. And cause and effect, and all of those are great arguments for the atheist. But guess what? We get those arguments from Scripture. And those arguments in Scripture are often made to people who already believe in God's existence. So what's the point for us? We need to go out and behold the design. And we need to see, hey, why, why when I go outside at night, I don't duck and think, well, one of the stars is going to fall and knock me upside my head. Why don't you think that's going to happen? You say, well, God designed it. They'll hang as they're supposed to. You know what? If God can handle the stars, the God of mercy... He can handle your life and mine. If God is the God of cause and effect and he spoke and all of these things exist as they do, behold the works of God and know that the mercy of God is just as constant as his creation and stand in awe. The psalmist says, come and behold the works of God. You need to go out and observe. You need to look. We need to study the Bible and open the pages of Scripture, not only to convince unbelievers of the truth of who God is, but to further convince ourselves that we really know who God says he is and claims to be. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork, but it also shows that God's going to work in me. The first creation of God is astounding when we go outside and look, but God did something far greater than that in what the Bible calls the new creation. We are new creatures in Christ, and what God has done in forgiving our sins, you could argue is far greater than what he did in hanging the stars and the moon. If God sent Jesus to die for our sins, and he did, Romans 8, 31 and 32, what makes you think that God's going to give up on us now? Behold the works of God. Jesus did not come to earth and live the life that he lived and die at the death that he died so that you and I could believe on him, turn from sins, be immersed in water, and God leaves us at the baptistry and say, hey, good luck from here. I hope you can make it. Because we can't. But the works of God suggest that the God who entered into the human experience and died on my behalf, by faith, he'll hold my hand all the way to the judgment. And even when I'm there, Jesus will stand as my advocate as I'm pronounced not guilty because there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. How do you know that? Because God's a God of mercy and we can go and behold his works. We can see what he's done in the past and he gives us the fuel and the confidence for what we are assured that he will do in the future. The Bible says God's for us, Psalm 56 and verse 9. God is for you. God's on your side. God's actually rooting for you and me. He wants you to win. This isn't a trap. God's for you. The Bible says, hey, God's with you. Lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age, Matthew 28 and verse 20. And then the Bible says God is in you, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Ephesians 3.17, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. God's for me, God's in me, God's with me. Behold God's works and never forget that God is a God of mercy, steadfast love, desiring to help those of us who need it the most. Now, here's number five. Here's the final one. The mercy of God is seen in Psalm 46, and this is the theme verse for the lesson really in verse 10. As we are still 
and as we know who God is. Be still and know. Be still and know God. The psalmist ends his thoughts on this verse, and then he repeats the refrain that he mentioned in verse 7 and verse 11. But verse 10 is the end of his any new thoughts being introduced by the psalmist. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. This is a two-part command. Be still and then know who God is. If we are going to know the God of mercy, we've got to do both of those things. Rest was built into the Old Testament calendar for people of Israel. They had to be still and know. They had to take the Sabbath day off and rest. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. It commanded the Israelites, nobody works on this day. Don't do any work. You know why God wanted them to be still on the Sabbath? Well, there are two reasons given in the Old Testament. In Exodus 20, God says, don't do anything on the Sabbath day because guess what? I formed the earth in six days and I took a rest and so you do the same thing. That's the first reason. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, he gives the same command. In verse 13 and 14, he says, In six days I made the earth, you rest on the Sabbath day. And then he adds this part, For you were slaves in Egypt, and you're going to the land of Canaan. Now God's saying to them, You rest on the Sabbath day, because you were slaves in Egypt, but you're not going to go to Canaan and be slaves to your work. You're not going to go to Canaan and think that just because you work hard enough, just because you do enough, just because you produce enough, you're going to keep the world turning. God says, you're going to take a day off, and what you're going to find is the sun's still going to rise, the world's still going to turn, things are going to continue to go, because the world is ran by me and not by you. I read a book called Cat and Dog Prayer, Cat and Dog Theology, and the authors of this book say every one of us has either the theology of a dog or the theology of a cat. I hope you're a dog. The dog says, you feed me. You clothe me. You shelter me. You love me. You must be God. That's what dogs say to their owners. Cats, on the other hand, if you've ever dealt with cats, cats say, you feed me. You clothe me. You shelter me. You feed me. I must be God. They want all of the attention. They want everything to be about them. God says, listen, on the seventh day, you rest. I'm the one taking care of you. I'm the one that's really in control. It's not you. You work and you contribute to the good creation that I made because I commanded you to do so, but I uphold the world by my power. Appreciate the mercy of God. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I'm God. One of the hardest things about 2020, and there were many difficult things, but one of the hardest things was being still, wasn't it? You think that's just for five and six-year-olds when you say, hey, be still, don't move. But it's harder for those of us that are a little older than five and six, too. Be still and know. You've got to do both. You could be still and be ignorant. You could not move and not do anything, and that wouldn't profit. But the psalmist says do both. Be still and know who God is. Be faithful and work for the Lord. But appreciate that we're never going to work our way into his love. God loves us. Be still and know who God is, that God's a God of mercy. God's a God of abundant compassion. God longs to pardon. God desires to forgive. Be still and know God. We need to study the word of God so that we might know who he is and then go act on those things. But we also need to study the Bible and really contemplate who God portrays himself to be and not misrepresent him to others or to ourselves. God's saying in Psalm 46 to his people, I'm a God of refuge. I'm a God of comfort. I'm a God of compassion. And it's about time that you're still enough to finally realize that and know that. I know the world's noisy. This psalm is that way. There are seas roaring and mountains being moved. But the people of God, if they could just focus their attention on who God is, 
they would drink deeply from all of the benefits of who he has revealed himself to be in this book. And though you and I are centuries removed from when these things were written, don't we need the same reminders? God's a God of refuge. He is. He cares. God is a God that removes our fears. The city of God, that is the citizens that make up the city of God, the church, is a place of safety and refuge. We fled for refuge to the hope that's set before us. God is a God of compassion and mercy toward us. He's a God that says, look at what I've done, behold my works. And the best for Christians is yet to come. And when you get anxious and when you get fearful and when you doubt the steadfast love of the Lord, be still and know exactly who he is. Thank you for your time this afternoon.